Uh, are you in Philippians? All right. Um, boys are gross. Can I get an amen on that? Boys are gross. Uh, I'm sorry. That's just the reality. Uh, specifically this morning, I want to think about teenage boys, okay? So boys in high school, boys in college, they're disgusting. One of the main reasons is, is because boys at that age have a one-track mind, and that is girls. That's all they think about. They are so focused on girls 24-7. Every conversation they have is about girls. Everything they talk about, everything they think about, girls, girls. How do we get girls? How do we find girls? How do we be where girls are? Now, they don't know how to act around girls. When they get around girls, they're lost. But that's what it's about. It's about girls. And so the way they see the world, the way they see themselves, everything revolves around girls. You ask one of these boys who's back from college for the summer, you ask him, how's your life? How are things going? And he'll say, man, my life is great. My car broke down. I don't have a job. I don't have any money. And my dog died. But there's a lot of girls at college. Everything goes through, oh yeah, college, well, how are your classes going? Man, I love my classes. I flunked out of world history, and I'm on academic probation, but I'm sitting by a lot of girls. Everything goes through that, you know? Did you find a church home in your, in your new college town? Do you like your church? Oh, church is great. I love my church. The worship is uninspired. The, the preacher's dry as a cob, but there's a lot of girls at that church. For a lot of teenage boys to live is girls. Some of you are that way about your grandkids. To live, everything goes through your grandchildren. You know, you don't have a conversation with anybody at any time without bringing up your grandkids. Something your grandson did last week that was really cool. Something your granddaughter did that was genius and inspired. You don't go anywhere without your cell phone. You don't do Google Maps. You don't do FaceTime. You don't text. But you've got 14 million pictures of your grandkids on your phone. And you can whip that thing out like Indiana Jones. You're ready to go. And you live from the last moment you saw your grandkids until the next moment you're going to see your grandkids like your hair's on fire. Like that's, that's all you can think about are your grandkids. And I can ask you, how are you doing? And you can say, great. I can't see. I can't hear. Uh, my knees are killing me. I can't stand up straight. I'm just coming off two surgeries. And I got three more planned this summer. But I'm going to see my grandkids a week from Monday. Everything goes through your grandkids. To live is your grandkids. Some of you are like that about your jobs. Everything's about your job, your self-identity, your self-worth, uh, how valuable you are, how things are going, how you feel about your church, how you feel about your family, how you feel about life. It all goes through your job. And I can ask you, how are you doing? And you know, your sewers may be backing up in your kitchen. The attic may be full of rats. You know, your kids won't talk to you, but you say, things are great. Things are so good. I just closed on the Hainsworth account, and if I can finish this project this month, I'm going to get a big promotion. To live is your job. Some of you are like that with the Texas Rangers, you know. Your life could be falling apart physically, emotionally, spiritually, and I say, how are you doing? And you say, great, the Texas Rangers are, oh, wait, my life is terrible. <laughs> I just realized. All right, so Paul, 
Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians, and we got to keep in mind, he's in prison, right? When he's writing this letter, he's in jail. He is chained to the Praetorian guards there in Rome, and he is awaiting a trial that could result in his execution. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. And on top of all that, there are other preachers in Rome who are bad-mouthing Paul. They're doing everything they can to stir up more trouble for him. And his brothers and sisters in Philippi are worried about him. They've sent money and supplies to Paul there in Rome. And they've sent Epaphroditus there to check on him. And they ask Paul, how are you doing? And he says, I'm doing great. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will always have sufficient courage so that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We opened up our study of Philippians last week by noticing how Paul remembers his past. Remember, Paul's time in Philippi was tough. It was very difficult. But he looks back and remembers that time with gratitude and joy because, remember, God always finishes what he starts. And so Paul can look back at his past and he can rejoice. And now here in the middle of the first chapter, he shifts the focus to his present and he sums it up with probably the most important statement in the first chapter. He says, to live is Christ. Paul's identity is in Christ. Paul's focus is on the gospel. Paul's mission is to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Paul comes at everything from this perspective of what is God doing to redeem the world? Paul sees everything from this perspective of how God is using him to accomplish that redemption. Paul sees things the way our Lord sees things. Paul intentionally thinks about things the way the Lord thinks about things. He is in Christ, and Christ is in him. They are one. Christ and Paul, they live together as one. It's very similar to what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2 when he said, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is describing the reality of a union with Christ that has broad and far-reaching practical applications for all of us today. Our self-worth 
our worldview, our perspective is shaped on Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. It flows from our identity in Christ, and it radically impacts the way we think and the way we talk and the way we react and the way we see everything. So a question today is, right now, in what do you place your identity? Today, right now, what are the life goals that are driving you? Is it your career? Is it your family? Is it retirement? Is it, is it travel? Today, right now, if somebody asks you, how are you doing? What do you first start talking to them about? Your career, your family, your money, your busy schedule? Paul says to live is Christ. And his identity in Christ allows Paul to rejoice because the kingdom of Christ is advancing. The Philippians know that Paul is in jail. They know he's going to trial. They're worried about him. How's he going to survive? How, how badly is Paul suffering? How awful is it? Paul, how are you doing? And Paul says, surprise, I'm great. He knows that what he writes is going to be just the opposite of what they would be expecting. And, and he says in verse 12, what has happened to me has rather served to advance the gospel. They had put Paul in chains to bind him and the kingdom, to restrict him and the kingdom. But surprise, it has actually released and liberated Paul and the kingdom. If, if you look at the message translation, sometimes I really like the way the message translates this. Uh, Philippians 1, starting in verse 12, it says, I want to report to you, friends, that my imprisonment here has had the opposite of its intended effect. Instead of being squelched, the message has actually prospered. All the soldiers here and everyone else too found out that I'm in jail because of this Messiah. That piqued their curiosity and they've learned all about him. Not only that, but most of the followers of Jesus here have become far more sure of themselves in the faith than ever, speaking out fearlessly about God, about the Messiah. It's kind of like what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He said, I'm being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. If he is chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, and if they are changing shifts, that means that that Paul is in chains, living in Christ, maybe with half a dozen, maybe even eight or ten or, or twelve different men every day. Imagine if you're one of these soldiers. You are chained to a guy who prays without ceasing. You're chained to a guy who constantly talks about his experience with the risen Lord. You are chained to a man who is continuously writing letters of encouragement to the dozens of churches he's planted all over the Roman Empire. And so some of the soldiers in this elite Praetorian Guard had come to faith. They had submitted to Jesus as Lord. There were people in Caesar's household at this point who had come to faith in Christ. And if Paul had not been put in prison, that probably wouldn't have happened. In fact, Paul says in verse 16, I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Well, who put him there? Did God put Paul in prison? The New American Standard Version says, I was appointed 
here. I was ordained to be here for the sake of the gospel. I think Paul sees it as a divine assignment. And whether God placed Paul in jail to advance the kingdom or whether Paul is working through or whether God is working through Paul's circumstances to advance the kingdom, Paul's identity in Christ allows him to rejoice because the kingdom is advancing. So he tells the Philippians, I'm great. I'm rejoicing. These chains are actually a vehicle for the spread of God's great news. So here's another question today. How is God using your circumstances to advance the kingdom? How is God using your current situation to take his love and salvation to others? Whatever chains are weighing you down, have those been ordained by God so you can expand his kingdom? Whatever sickness you have, whatever illness, whatever depression, whatever loneliness, whatever you're dealing with, has that been appointed to you by God to be used for his purposes? And you might say, oh, none of that stuff applies to me. I'm doing great. Okay. Has God ordained your health, your good health, and your joy for his purposes? Has God appointed all of the money and all the security you have for his divine purposes? Have you been appointed a wonderful family so that God can use that to show his mercy and grace to others? Did God put you in the Golf Course Road Church of Christ in Midland, Texas? That's the way Paul sees things. Paul says to live is Christ. And this perspective also allows him to rejoice because the gospel of Christ is being proclaimed. While Paul is in jail, there are other Christian preachers in Rome, and they're, they're piling on. They're, they're preaching out of envy and rivalry, and, and their motivations are all wrong. This is a power play here. They are intentionally trying to hurt Paul. They're trying to discredit him in the eyes of the church and the community for their own gain. And this is, this is selfish, and this is sick. But when the Philippians ask Paul, how are you doing? He says, surprise, I'm great. It doesn't matter. That's, that's what he says in, in verse 18. Where did that go? Philippians uh, 1, verse 18. He says, what does it matter? There it is. What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. Again, this is Paul's perspective. At the end of the day, after all their efforts to oppose Paul, They've only succeeded in doing the very thing Paul thinks is most important. They're preaching Christ. Paul's not concerned about naming this group. He could have. But we don't know who he's talking about. Why? Because he doesn't think it matters. That, that's not important to Paul. These, these other preachers, they're, they're mean and they're selfish. And they're using Paul's chains to promote themselves. But they are preaching Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sins. The gospel is being proclaimed. And so Paul's attitude is, it doesn't matter. He is rejoicing because the gospel is being preached. Now, this is a part of Paul's perspective that I think we have a harder time with. Now, we're in pretty good company, I think, with Jesus' disciples. But you'll remember the story in Luke 9 
when the disciples run up to Jesus and they say, Master, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. And Jesus immediately, remember what he said, hey, just because that guy's not with you doesn't mean he's not with me. Amen? We have a hard time with that, honestly. But church, if we are going to grow in this place more into the image of Christ, if we are really going to partner together in Jesus' mission for Midland, Texas, we're going to have to understand that God's salvation work is bigger than us and bigger than what we're doing here in our place. Amen? He is using us, no doubt, praise God, and he is using the churches of Christ. Oh yeah, amen. But God is using us. A lot of different people in a lot of different churches in a lot of different places to reconcile all of creation back to himself. And so our identity is in that, right? Our identity is in Christ Jesus. So we don't complain, we don't argue, we don't bicker with other Christians who don't do things exactly the same way we do things. We don't talk bad about them. We don't look down on them in any way. That's why we're committed in this place to worshiping and working and sacrificing and serving with Methodists and Presbyterians and Baptists and any Christians in this city who are proclaiming the good news of salvation from Jesus Christ. Amen. This is our Father's will. Yeah, but they don't do that certain thing. Or they do those things a little differently than we do. No, stop that. Paul says, it doesn't matter. We rejoice because there are other Christians out there declaring the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the deal. Yeah, but Alan, they don't. No, stop that. Stop it, okay? I don't care what the, but they don't is. Or but they do. It doesn't matter. Paul says, it doesn't matter. Christ is preached and we rejoice. That feels like a good thing to say out loud, doesn't it? Christ is preached and we rejoice. Say that with me real loud. Christ is preached and we rejoice. That was a good practice. Now we're going to say it like we mean it and like we're going to stand on it. And like this is a hill we might die on if we have to, right? You ready? Here we go. One, two, three. Christ is preached and we rejoice. Amen. Amen. All right. Finally, finally, let's notice that Paul's identity in Christ allows him to relax because the glory of Christ is certain. Relax. Paul has no idea whether he's going to live or die. He might be released, he might be executed. This thing could go either way. His Philippian brothers and sisters are definitely worried about it. And when they ask Paul, how are you doing? He says, surprise, I'm great. I'm really good. Because either way, Christ is exalted. Verse 20 again. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. Listen, if you are up four touchdowns, and there's only one second left on the clock, it doesn't matter if you have the ball or if you're on defense. 
It doesn't matter if you throw the ball into the end zone or if you fall down and take a knee. It doesn't matter if you throw it into the concession stand. It doesn't matter what happens on that last play. It doesn't. Why? The game's already over. It's already decided. There's no way you can lose up 28 points with just one second left. There's not a 29-point shot in football. It's already over. It doesn't matter. Either way, you're going to win, and nothing's going to tarnish that victory. Nothing's going to take away from that victory. And so that's, that's Paul here. Paul's future is already set. His destiny is already decided. Whether he lives or dies, he knows Christ is going to be glorified. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. And Paul's having a tough time deciding which is best. You know, if Clint Eastwood put a gun to Paul's head and he said, all right, Paul, you want to live or you want to die, punk? <laughs> Paul would say, man, I really don't know. I have no idea. Live or die? I don't know. If, if I live, it means I, I get to keep working in the kingdom of God. But if I die, it means I get to go and be with Christ. But if I live, it means I get to, to be used by God for his glorious purposes. But if I die, it means I get to actually bask in that glory of the Lord forever. But if I live, and Clint Eastwood walks away. You know, that's the kind of thing that, that would irritate Clint Eastwood, you know. But, but, but that's Paul here, right? Both results, both life and death, are so appealing to Paul, he can't hardly choose. If I ask you, you want to live or die, that's a no-brainer, right? You don't even blink. You know the answer immediately. But for Paul, it's like, hold on, this, this is tough. This is a hard one for Paul. Verse 23, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Paul finally decides that dying to be with Christ is the better option. But if he stays alive, it'll be better for the people of Philippi. It'll be better for their Christian growth. It'll be better for their joy in the Lord. And so Paul practices what he preaches and he puts the needs of others ahead of his own. If he has the choice, Paul says, I think I'd rather stay alive for your sake. I'd rather stay alive because I know that's what would help you. That is surprising to me. That is strange to me that Paul says dying is better than living. I'd rather die than live. It's surprising to me because we live in a culture where avoiding death and putting off death at all costs no matter what is the highest ideal. Nobody wants to die. And we put it off for as long as we can by whatever means necessary. But here's Paul. He says, you know what? Life and death is not that important. The way he frames it, which will better advance the kingdom? That's how he decides. I'm not sure we make big decisions like that. I'm not sure we make small decisions like that. We should. Which of these two jobs that I'm considering will allow me to better serve the kingdom of Christ? Which of these two restaurants we're thinking about for lunch today will allow us to better proclaim the grace and the love of Jesus? Which of these two girls I'm thinking about dating will partner with me to proclaim the good news of the gospel? Those kinds of conversations won't sound strange to us if our identity is in Jesus, if to live truly is 
Christ. Paul's indifferent about his own death. That, we, we, we need to pay attention to that. That's a pretty big deal to me. His only concern is Jesus and the kingdom of God. That's all he thinks about. And I think we need to look at that this morning. I think we need to look at that square in the face today. And we need to look at ourselves. Where am I on this? Do I look at my own death as a gain or as a loss? How do you look at your own death? And I think you answer that question by looking at the way you see your own life. Put those blanks up there, Trina, if you don't mind. Here they are. To live is, and to die is, I mean, that's, that's what the Bible says, right? The Bible says, to live is Christ. And if you put anything else in that first blank, anything else other than Christ, then you can't put gain in the second blank. It doesn't work. Watch this. To live is money. Well, to die is poverty. To live is fame. To die is to become nobody. To live is pleasure. That's what it's all about. Well, then to die is pain. To live is to get more. Well, then if you die, you lose it all. To live is power. Well, then to die is to become like everybody else. If to live is Christ, then to die is gain. And how you fill in that first blank has everything to do with your level of joy. Paul found great joy in all of his circumstances. He could rejoice no matter his situation because his identity is in Christ. I'd like to ask if I can, all of our elders and, and our wives and all of our ministers and our spouses, would y'all stand up please? And would y'all just kind of place yourselves around the worship center and, and be available? Uh, if anyone would like to um, ask for prayers this morning, if you'd like uh, us to, to just have a conversation with you about what it means that your identity is in Christ and, and nowhere else. I'm, I'm curious, and this is something we're talking about as elders and ministers here. What if all of us together, what if we cultivated our identity in Christ? What, what would our lives look like if we saw everything, if we, if we came at everything from our identity in Jesus? What would our decisions look like? The things we say, the things we do, the way we talk, the way we make decisions, the, the, the things we buy. What if all of that was considered from a radical, Christ-centered perspective? What kind of people would we be? What kind of a church would we become? How wonderfully would Christ be glorified if all of us adopted this Christ-centered perspective that is so much more than a motto? We're going to sing a song, and I'm going to ask you if you would, if you would like. Everybody stand, please. Grab one of us. If you want a conversation, if you would like some prayer, we would feel so honored to lift you up to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's sing.